everyone. So, yes, if you haven't gotten your uh, kids' drawing thing, you know, today's a, a series, today's a gospel and race, next week we're talking about gospel and fear, so they're a little bit, a little bit cha more challenging to find kids' things to draw, but this is a great one on unity, so feel free to grab one of those and, and color that for the kids. Well, whenever dealing with a, a, a sensitive topic, ones like that we're dealing with this morning, I always find a great source of wisdom and direction is uh, good old Dr. Seuss. So let me read to you from his book, The Sneetches. Some of you may remember this. Now, the star belly Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain belly Sneetches had none upon theirs. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly sneeches would brag, were the best kinds of sneeches dawn on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they would snort, we'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right past them without even talking. When the star belly children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? No, not at all. You only could play if your bellies had stars, and the plain belly children had none upon theirs. When the star belly sneeches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toast, they never invited the plain belly sneeches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after year. Now, if you're familiar with the good old Dr. Seuss story, you're familiar that the rest of the Sneetches plays out that a, an, a businessman, an entrepreneur, shows up with a machine that for the low price of $3 will put a star on your belly. So all the plain belly Sneetches sign up immediately and pay their $3 and get stars put on their bellies. And then the star belly Sneetches feel like, well, they lost their, their upper hand. They're, they're no longer special. Well, that's okay, because the same businessman has another machine that for the low price of $10 will remove a star from your belly. So you know the story. It goes back and forth about the Sneetches getting stars that didn't have them and the ones that had stars getting removed. And it goes back and back and forth and back and forth until Seuss writes this. Until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. And this continues on and on again until the Sneetches are all penniless and the entrepreneur walks away with all of their money, totally amused at the Sneetches' foolishness. But the Sneetches learn a valuable lesson through this whole situation. They realize they spent so much time on whether or not they had stars or not that they forgot that the most important thing was that they were all Sneetches. Now, Dr. Ro Dr. Seuss wrote the Sneetches back in 1961, obviously as a satire of racial discrimination that he was experiencing in his communities, particularly the anti-Semitism that he was experiencing. This morning's message is inspired by emails, conversations, and questions I've been receiving in the last probably a little over a month or so about what is a kind of Christian response? How do we think Christianly about some of what's going on in our culture? And so this morning, uh, a couple of things I just need to let you know about. The message will be more, probably more professorial, kind of like a lecture, uh, than it may be pastoral like a sermon might be. Some, there might be a little bit of sermonizing going on. There might be a little bit of lecturing. It's just going to be a little bit different. Um, it's going to be a little bit longer. Uh, originally, this sermon was just going to be uh, a post. About a two months ago, I posted on Realm some ways to think about how Christians should think about what's going on in our society. Uh, the Gospel Coalition website picked up on that, and they ran that on their national website. And so that was going to be the structure of this message, the five words, um, grieve, resist, listen, learn, trust. But as I started doing some good studying, I realized there's, there's more that needs to be said on this than just that. So, so this sermon was supposed to be, that one part was supposed to be the whole sermon. Now it's a third of the sermon. That doesn't mean the sermon's two-thirds longer. It just means that today it's going to go a little bit longer than usual. So I just asked for a little bit of patience and maybe a little bit more realizing, yeah, this is going to be a sermon, but we're also going to be talking about history and all those things. So it might be, sounds like a little bit of a, a history lecture as well. Um, I, I, I make, I'm no, under no delusion that this single message is going to change the broader conversation, right? So, so my aim is much more modest. My aim is directed for our church. And my goal is that maybe if you're not, you just get a little bit more curious about our history, about what the Bible teaches about this that you start to wonder a little bit more and maybe give some of you some direction as if you feel that there's more God would have you to do in this cultural moment, how to do that well without just citing off right-wing talking points or left-wing talking points, which as you know on social media doesn't help anyone. 
As Christians, we're called to be winsome and articulate, and the only way you can do that is put in the hard work of thinking through the issues. That's what we have done. Not, I don't mean as Christ community. That's what Christians have done. That's what we've done through the ages, through pandemics in history, through wars in history. We have been the salt of the earth and the light of the earth. And so hopefully maybe some of you will be interested, and that's why this stack of books are here. Uh, so these are some of the books that have formed some of my thoughts. So this morning, I want to just have three points in the sermon. It's kind of long, but three points. Number one, a brief biblical perspective on gospel and race. And, and I admit, as I was getting this ready, I realized this could be several sermons, several weeks. But so this is the first kind of launch into it, and it may become more, but here's where we're at. So a, b a brief biblical perspective on gospel and race. Then I want to follow it with a brief historical perspective on, on America and race. And then a brief personal perspective of how should we think about racial tensions in our society and then offer you some homework because I want what you're hearing here to go beyond um, 2 p.m. Not, not that I'll be taking till 2 p.m., but I might be a little bit longer. All right, so let's start. Number one, a brief biblical perspective on gospel and race. And so let me just really do something horrible. Speakers never do this, but I'm going to do that. Here's my three points, and then I'm going to just talk about it, but I want you to hear them clearly. The three points I'm making here is that, number one, God made one race. The whole notion of races is not only anti-biblical, it's, it's just right wrong. And I'll talk a little bit about that from the secular research. Number two, Sin separated that race. Sin fragmented it. That's what sin does. Sin distorts. Sin deceives. Sin divides. And so the, the tensions we have around race, it's just a manifestation of sin. But thankfully, number three, the gospel overcomes that separation and at great cost to God himself. So those are the three points, right? God made one race. Um, sin separated that race, but the gospel overcomes that separation. So Obviously, if you're a note taker, you can write down Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28. Let me just read them briefly to you. You're, most of you are very familiar with this, but this is where uh, God tells us where we came from. And I should have had this ready to go, but here we go. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So not only is he talking quantitatively to have more kids, but qualitatively, all the wonderful cultures and ethnicities of the world, but we're all human beings. The notion that there are other races, and you, most of you know this, and you should know it because finally science has admitted to it and caught up to it, but the notion of race itself, according to some scholars, is itself racist. There's no distinction between us. As a matter of fact, uh, in some of the research, the notion of separate races doesn't even exist in ancient literature until about 400 years ago. It was non-existent. Yes, there were other cultures, there were distinctions upon ethnicities, but this concept of different race did not exist up until 400 years ago. It reaches its zenith towards the later half of the 19th century and dominated the early half of the 20th century primarily because of social Darwinism, eugenics. And scientific racism was among the leading um, ideas of intelligentsia in the last half of the 19th and early, half of the, early part of the 20th century. So, so I'm, I'm, a couple things going on here. So this whole thing about science being able to tell us everything, here's one perfect example where science got it absolutely wrong. This notion of social Darwinism ruined a lot of uh, what our understandings of different ethnicities and cultures. They based it on cranial size, subspecies, and migration patterns, and all of that they believed to say that biological markers were indicative of, of genetic superiority or mental superiority or inferiority, and they made, people made careers out of this. This was the prevailing view of science from the later half of the 19th century to the early part of the 20th century. So, so all that to say is science is not objective or always right. Now, to be fair, they finally come out and realized and admitted this was a huge mistake. Reality is they're just kind of catching up with what the Bible says. The Bible says God made just man, humanity, male and female, the earth creature. Adam is the Hebrew word that simply means the earth creature. Then there's Ish and Isha, the male and female. So the reality is there's one race. But sin separates this race. That's what sin does. Isaiah 59, 2, the prophet said, Your sins have separated from you, from you from God. Your sins have separated his face from showing you favor. 
We see that from Genesis 3. Sin separated us in our relationship with God. Romans 8 tells us that our sins separate our relationship with the creation around us, and our sins separate our relationship with one another. That's what sin does. What we might call today these, these racial tensions that separate us are merely symptomatic of the true separation we experience from one another as a direct result of sin. That's sin's nature. That's what it does, right? In our modern context that we've been experiencing very in a heightened level in the last several months, but really going back to the civil rights, really going back to the Civil War, um, what we might call this, this divide between blacks and whites, and now obviously there's more nuance to that, right? But, but that's the, the cultural flashpoint at the moment. That's what we call it between blacks and whites in America. In the Middle East, it's between the Jews and the Arabs, if you're familiar with that. In Romania, it's between Romanians and the gypsies. If it's South Africa, it's between the, the, the whites and the blacks and the blacks and the coloreds. If it's in Asia, it's between the Japanese and the Koreans. If it's in Europe, it's between most of the Europeans and, and the Polacks or the Polis, right? Or if it's in Hawaii, it's between the Hawaiians and the Portuguese. Sorry, my dear sister up there, but that's the reality. Um, she's Portuguese, right, Gemma? You're Portuguese, right? Yes, yeah, so, so it's between the Hawaiians and Portuguese or the Howleys in general. The point is, not all of these separations, the intensity or histories are the same, but if you get down to it, that's just a matter of degree and situation. At the core, it's the same kind of division, the same kind of separation, the same kind of I am better than you. You are different from me. That's what sin is does. And, and, and some of you may have been surprised when I talk about South Africa. It, it, my friend who in, in America, we would all simply call colored or black. He's not black in South Africa. He's a colored. There's a distinction. And it was really clear that humanity, because of our sin, we were going to find every reason to establish ourselves from you and make myself better from you. The Sneetches did it with stars. We do it with color or whatever else it might be. Now that sin takes many different forms. It might be as subtle and as, as um, unjustified but understandable from what's called um, ethnocentrism, right? Ethnocentrism all the way to full-blown, we are better than you racism. Now, let me ask this question because this is important in the current dialogue. How many of you here are familiar with the term ethnocentrism? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. And this is the thing that's really concerning because ethnocentrism is very different than racism, yet because we don't have nuance in the broader conversation, we're just using this one kind of lightning rod term and everyone feels like that that's an unfair allegation. But the person using that term doesn't understand ethnocentrism, so that's the only term they have. What is ethnocentrism? It is something that I think by God's given design is how we function. Ethnocentrism, if you think about the word, ethnic central, right? is the way we understand the culture you grew up in. I grew up in a primarily poly-Euro-Asian culture, but the, the dominant thing, because my family was, my mother was Japanese, Asian culture was predominant. We did things a certain way. We ate with chopsticks. We took our shoes off before we come into the house. And I make sense of this because that's what my parents teach me, and we realize that must be the right thing because parents teach us that. We make sense of the world. God designed us to make sense of the world. So our ethnicity, our culture helps us understand this is the way you do things. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way we get along. Ethnocentrism talks about the disequilibrium when I run into uh, what I would call a howly person or a white person, and they're not eating with chopsticks. What do they eat with? A barbaric fork, right? How unsophisticated using a fork. Or when they walk into my house wearing what? Their shoes. Like, don't you know better? You take your shoes off before you come into the house. What's happening there? Am I superior to them? Are they superior to me and that's why they're doing it? No. I am bumping up. We are feeling the disequilibrium of different ethnic, ethnocentric cultures clashing. And once we understand the reasons we do something differently and explain it, we understand each other or sometimes even adopt the other way of doing things. Ethnocentrism is something we all practice. And you feel it keenly when you leave your majority culture and go to a different, and you become the minority in another majority culture, that's when you realize, whoa, I do things really differently. Hopefully you don't say, whoa, they all do things wrong, right? You realize I'm very different from them. Ethnocentrism, I'm not saying it's benign, but it's not nearly the marked evil that racism is, that racism says inherently because of nothing other than Ethnocentrism is social-cultural. Racism says, biologically, 
I am superior to you. Biologically, you are inferior to me for no other reason than the particular genes and biology that make you up. Those are very different things, right? The point is, our sin can manifest in something benign like ethnocentrism when I bump up to differences and then it kind of converts to an ethno-superiority, which is like racism, or right out of the gate, I'm just better than you, right? Sin is not, is a multifaceted thing, right? And I'm just saying that sin, this thing is what all of us experience in our cultures. The New Testament captures the, the separation of humanity in its most consequential reality in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. I'll read it for you. You can just write that down. When Paul says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We are separated not by the categories of our nationalities or ethnicities. At doing what he does in dividing us in Adam and in Christ, the most important distinction is not ethnicity or nationality, but spiritual allegiance. That is the most important reality of human beings, regardless of your ethnicity or nationality, which in turn means this, friends, that our nationality and our ethnicity are not primary to our, our true identity. They are secondary. Our primary identity, if you are a Christian, is that you are, either, you are in Christ. Paul makes that very clear in Galatians 3.28. Notice the categories that are flashpoints in our society that Paul dismisses and says the most important thing is you are in Christ. Here it is. There's neither Jew nor Greek ethnicity. There's neither slave nor free kind of economic hierarchy. There's neither male nor female gender sexuality. You are all one in Christ. Paul is not saying those distinctions are not important. He's just saying the thing that matters more than anything is that you are not in Adam, but you are in Christ. And wherever you might fall on that ethnic, economic, or gender spectrum is irrelevant. The thing that matters that you are in Christ and not in Adam. Friends, the reason this is so important, by holding to our identity in Christ as found in the message of the gospel, it is the only way society can overcome both racism and nationalism that's going through the world, right? Now, we talked about racism. Nationalism is a very similar dynamic. Those words, um, nationalism, used to be synonymous with patriotism, so older generations might merge those. Now, Patriotism is something fine. It's a love for your country. I'm a patriot. I love my country. With all of its flaws, I'm a patriot. I'm not a nationalist. A nationalist believes by default that their tribe, their clan, their country is superior by virtue of the fact that it simply is. It is. And furthermore, no other interests of any other clan, culture, or nation needs to be considered except one's own. That's nationalism, right? That doesn't mean that every nation and every individual is like, like there's no differences between us. This is where the gospel is so helpful. We can have a, a unity yet still maintain a diversity. And, and let me illustrate that this, this way. I do think, while a patriot and not a nationalist, that America is, is one of the last best hopes that, that society globally has. Okay? That's not a nationalist statement. That, that's not simply because I feel that. Margaret Thatcher said the same, a former prime minister of England. She said, America, she says, of all nations in the world, they are all the result of history. America alone is the result of an idea, right? And so how, how can that be saying that, that, that you're saying, don't be a nationalist, but America is a greater country? Well, in the same way, I can say this. The president of the United States is a greater man than I am, but he's not a better man than I am. Does that, does that sound paradoxical? It's not. How is he greater than me, but not, actually, he could be better than me. I don't know him personally, um, but, he, but, but right now, he's greater than me, but I don't think he's better than me. Well, actually, he couldn't be better than me. Sorry, I'm working through issues right now. What do I mean? <laughs> what do I mean? By virtue, one term is an essence, is a term of functionality, while the other is a, is, a, is a term of ontology, of being, of essence, He's greater because he's the president of the United States. Whether it's Donald Trump or uh, Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, doesn't matter. The president of the United States, by virtue of the fact, he's a greater man than I am. He bears greater, greater responsibility, greater privilege, greater power. He's greater than me, functionally. But he's not better than me in my essence and who I am, right? So in the same way that nations may not be better than one another, they can be greater than one another. Does that make sense? 
I'm trying to create a situation where it's not either all this or all that, but there's spectrum. And that's a lot of what we have to deal with on the issues of race and these tensions. We have to go beyond the talking points on either side and realize there's a lot of room in between. So as a result, friends, the Bible teaches that if you are a Christian, I'm a Christian, my citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. I am a Christian first, an American second. The Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. You are not in Adam. So what the Bible teaches me is that I am a Christian first, a Mohawk, a Scot, Japanese, Dutch, second. I am a Christian before I'm an American. I am a Christian before I'm a Mohawk Indian or Japanese or Dutch or Scotch, Dutch or Scotch. God's kingdom and Christ's person is perfect. Our nations and ethnicities are not. In fact, because all nations and all ethnicities are part of this fallen world, we should expect that there are areas of growth and change that are necessary for every nation and ethnicity. And this applies to everyone, whether you're um, Arab or Jew, white or black, and, and those terms are just, there's a, what do those even mean, right? Those are colors. They're not, they're not ethnicities. So, so there's a lot of conversation higher up that we probably won't hear about until 15, 20 years when academia trickles down. But they're trying to abandon this whole concept of white-black because that does not describe ethnicity. My point simply is, all cultures, Japanese, Korean, Haole, Hawaiian, have things about it we can affirm and love because they are representations of God's character, and we need to confront and challenge because they're fallen in sin. That's true of individuals, and that's true of cultures. So, God made one race. Sin fragmented, separated that race. The gospel overcomes that separation at great cost to God himself. If you have a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Let me just read it and just kind of expound on it briefly before we jump into our second point this morning. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Paul is talking to, to the Gentiles right now. And these next few phrases, he's talking about like the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant. He's basically saying you were out, you were not part of the promised people of God. You, were, you didn't have that stuff. Um, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a horrible place to be. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near. How's this happen, Paul? How were we brought near? Here it is, that prepositional phrase. By the blood of Christ, you were brought near. How or why? Verse 14, for he himself, because he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How do you do this, Paul? Verse 15, he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance. He did this by doing away with the Ten Commandments, the, the, the demands of God, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what Paul is saying is that from arguing from greater to lesser, if Christ could remove the dividing wall of hostility that existed between God and humanity by, by the demands of his holiness, and Christ satisfied him, and he removed that and reconciled us to him, he has certainly done that to any other separation between humanity. Because the dividing law, the dividing wall that was between humanity and God far transcends any division, any separation you could possibly imagine between humanity. If... if Christ, through his work, could get rid of, satisfy, and reconcile God to us. He can do that with all ethnicities and all nationalities. In some sense, friends, Paul, we can't unpack it, but Paul is saying, hey, if you're talking to us today, he says, look, are you Christians? Are you real? for real? For real? Are you really a Christian? Not, not just cultivated Christianity that you grew up in the church and somehow you're saying you're Christian. Do you get that Jesus died to reconcile you to God? Okay, you get that. Then what, what do you mean you got to have racial reconciliation? If God reconciled you to his father, if, if Christ reconciled you to his father, you think whatever separates you from somebody else is greater than that issue? Paul is saying, 
You would say, look, racial reconciliation has been won in Christ. Later in chapter 4, notice he doesn't say try to, try to create unity. Chapter 4, he says, you need to maintain the unity. The challenge is we need to maintain the unity that he won us. He, we need to maintain that by not, by not drifting to the left or to the right or, or listening to voices contrary to Scripture. The unity we have that we share, we have because of Christ. And if you have ever traveled on your own and met, been alone and met a believer, it doesn't matter. The, the language barrier, the skin, the culture, there is a fellowship there because you found a brother or sister. That's been one for us. Now, we got to stop there because I said it's a brief perspective on gospel and race. I want to transition now to a brief historical perspective on America and race. Right now, if you're listening to the news, you'd think that there are two very different views of America, right? One is the view, and I've heard this from various authors and people, that the bedrock of America, the bedrock foundation of America is racism, that the whole enterprise from constitution to today is corrupt, so we need to tear it down and start over. The other view of America is that America is a city on a hill. It has done no wrong and it is guilty or innocent of any racial crimes. Which view of America is correct? I would say, well, neither of these are completely true, but I can understand, and if you understand our history, you can see why they're, understand, they're, they're understandable why people would hold those views. Friends, our, our history, I'll tell you this if you paid attention in high school or college, our history is complex. Our nation, like our people, are a mixed bag. I'm going to pull from a sermon several weeks ago where I talked about the gospel helps us see people honestly, that we don't have to lionize or demonize people. We don't have to be on a pedestal or always in a pit, right? You know, sometimes we're that way with people. You can either never do anything wrong or never do anything right. The gospel helps you understand people can be simultaneously saints and sinners. That's true of our nation as well. We can simultaneously reflect the character of God and our values in our society and simultaneously reflect that we are fallen in our sin and consumed by our selfishness. That is not mutually exclusive. That's the reality we live in in a fallen world. Our struggles today are still tied to the challenges of our nation from yesterday. And I don't just mean the civil rights. And there are some of you who are here who are alive during those times, and you understand that. But I'm talking back to the Civil War and even beyond. It is clear that we won the war to end slavery. We, we can date it, April 9th, 1865. We won the war to end slavery, but friends, we did not end the war to end racism. We did not win the war to end racism. And actually, that war will never end until Jesus Christ is thoroughly enthroned in the hearts of every man, woman, and child. So while we did end the war, we won the war to end slavery, we did not win the war to end racism. And in my study here for this sermon and just ongoing, um, it's been very clear to me how just one act can change society in ways we can't even comprehend. I, I never quite thought of the, the impact of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln like I have until I was preparing for this Sunday when John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln just six days after the war was declared over and we won. Lincoln served one term. His first term was to fight the Civil War and end slavery. His second term was to unify the country through Reconstruction, and he never got to see it through. Now you say, wait a minute, we, we have the Reconstruction era, but it didn't work the way Lincoln had dreamed and hoped. You see, keeping with his character, and Lincoln's character was with malice to none and charity for all, as his vice president, he chose Andrew Johnson, who was a southerner, a slaveholder, a sympathizer to the South, a sympathizer to the South. And in his characteristic style, he thought that will be an olive branch to the southern states so that when we win, they, we can come together. Well, when Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln, it put Johnson in power. And Johnson, uh, uh, um, I'm hesitating because I don't know the actual site, he didn't hold the values that Lincoln did. He went through with the principles of Reconstruction, but in a twisted, deformed, and distorted way. And so we never saw the Reconstruction. So in a sense, when, when Lincoln was assassinated, that pushed back the hope we had of ending this shadow of, of slavery and racism by at least 100 years. Because when Johnson took over and he brought in the constitutional changes that Lincoln believed necessary, the abolition of slavery, right? And I meant 13. 
the, protect, the, the equal protection under the law of all citizens, uh, Amendment 14, the, the prohibition of discrimination on voting, Amendment 15, all of those were twisted and not formed the way Lincoln intended. Did you know, for example, slavery is still legal in the United States? How many of you knew that? Raise your hand. Don't, don't be shy. If you know, you know, raise your hand. Yeah. Most people are shocked to realize that. Why aren't we, why aren't our politicians having that debate? In the 13th Amendment, as punishment for crime, you may be forced back into servitude and slavery as punishment for crime. That's just one example of how Johnson took Lincoln's ideals. He had to push them through because everyone agreed to them, but he twisted them so they were never what he intended. In fact, Johnson's disregard for the, the principles of Reconstruction really was code for the Southerners for the restoration of Confederate values. Johnson quickly tried to bring back into the Congress Southerners who didn't hold to the values of what the war was fought over. And so, and I say this very carefully, there were many individuals brought into the leadership of this country that did not care to end slavery. And they had political power. That's just a historical fact. We can't deny that because of Johnson's actions. So in a sense, friends, the war hadn't really ended. It just changed character. Listen to what one Confederate promised. And this is chilling. Instead of organized armies, we shall have bands of assassins everywhere in the field, and the stiletto and the torch will take the place of the sword and musket. Now, my wife told me, to be clear of this, I don't mean stiletto heels, right? Stiletto means knife, right? You, did you all know that, right? Because I told her, honey, everyone knows a stiletto is a knife. She says, no, everyone thinks a stiletto is a heel, but you get it, right? So notice what this confederate promised. He says, okay, the war is won. You guys fought and ended the organized armies, but we will now be assassins in every field. We won't have sword and muskets, but we will have stilettos and torches. And for a hundred years, that took place in the South until the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. And the reason that's important for us, by and large, we are a homogenous group. I see a couple of minorities in here, and I'm feeling at home for that. Um, <laughs> the reason I bring that up, it's easy to think, okay, the world was on, we're done, we, we, we move on. But the nightmare of slavery was just replaced with another kind of nightmare. And in one sense, it was even worse because it wasn't getting attention. It wasn't getting the news. The Memphis Massacre of 1866, the New Orleans Massacre, the Colifax, Louisiana Massacre of 1873, and on and on and on and on. It can go on and on and on. I'm not trying to you know, say, okay, so therefore everything we're hearing out there that's absolutely right, I'm just trying to frame redemption. None of us know what it's like to live with that kind of fear. Maybe some of the minorities in your life don't even know, right? But for those brothers and sisters, many of whom were believers, they know that fear. So the Civil War had became a un, very uncivil guerrilla war. And maybe that helps you understand maybe why in those areas of the South there is such pain. That, that for us, we go, what's the big deal? I mean, we ended slavery. One kind. But now, that's not the whole story. It never is, right? That, that is not the whole story of the South. Because for, well, let's for example, uh, Booker T. Washington, I'm reading through his kind of autobiography. Men like Booker T. Washington, who emancipated at the age of 17 years old, his whole life he was a slave. He didn't realize he had a childhood until he was emancipated and talked to other people who had childhoods. He started the Tuskegee Institute. If you heard of the Tuskegee Airmen, that's where they came from, is the, the institute that Booker T. Washington started and founded, where thousands of black men and black men and their lives were lifted from poverty and changed for good. And I might add, aided by good men and women from the South. And story after story like that can be told. Men and women from the South risking life and limb for a vision of a free America. Friends, I want to encourage you, read the primary sources. Don't just watch the news and listen to people blather on. Read men like Booker T. Washington. Read men like uh, Frederick Douglass. Read Harriet Tubman. You may not agree with everything. That's okay. Like, I, I don't know if I mentioned, but most of these people, none of them are, well, one of them is a Christian. I think Booker T. Washington was. He didn't get into it too much. But here, as an example, let's read what Booker T. Washington says. This is not CNN or Fox News. This is Booker writing it. He's talking about the Reconstruction period. By now, he's the founder of a well-respected institute in the South. 
And he says, during the whole of the Reconstruction period, two ideas were constantly agitating in the minds of the colored people, or at least in the minds of a large part of the race. You'll never believe what the first one is. One of these was the craze, the hunger for Greek and Latin learning. Yay, Greg, way to go. Did you hear that? Booker T. Washington, emancipated slave, says one of the driving hungers of these people was to learn Greek and Latin. And the second one, which we actually hear a lot about in the, in the debates, was the desire to hold office. But the reason I bring that up is you're not going to hear of the, the desire of millions of slaves emancipated wanting to learn Greek or Latin or go to school and get educated. And Booker says during Reconstruction, the schools were overflowing with people, with, with the black community, because they saw, as he did, education was the way to change their lives for the better. My point simply is, our history's complex. There's good and bad. The reason so many people from the North came down to start these schools in the South, now, lest you think the North abolished slavery and they were all loving, kind of enlightened people, yeah. But no, right? It's always yes and no. They did desire abolition. They wanted the blacks freed, but they didn't want them living next to them. So rather than invite them north, others went south and started schools. In fact, there are stories of trainloads of freed blacks being shipped back down to the south. Reading our history will make you joyously celebrate and proud to be an American and make you weep. It's just a reality. That doesn't mean one narrative or the other is always right. We're saints and sinners. In fact, that being said, uh, getting back to this in the South, the whites and blacks fighting for a free America, Dr. Willens from uh, Princeton University on American history says this, organized anti-slavery politics originated in America. In 1775, the first anti-slavery organization in the world was formed, and it was called the Society for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. Kind of rolls off the tongue there. But that was the first society officially organized, the first political body in America in 1775, the first in the world. By the end of 1790, seven more statewide anti-slavery societies were created. In fact, by the time the U.S. Constitution was ratified, you know this, most of the North had abolished slavery, if not outright, a gradual emancipation. And several other groups actively championed to end it all together. Now, do we wish things were done differently? Absolutely. Especially when it comes to the Constitution, right? Are we sad that more didn't or couldn't get done? Yes, but let's not discount what happened with the Constitution. It's a fascinating document that in the midst of all this turmoil, the, the, the paradox of a document guaranteeing life, liberty, and the pursuit, pursuit of happiness for all people, that all men are created equal, would at the same time be the founding document of a, of a country that half had slaveholders. Yet at the same time, the document was so craftily written by the ex exclusion of the phrase, no property in man, that the seeds for the destruction of slavery were planted without the southern states even realizing that it had done it. It's complex. It's amazing. Is there more work to be done? Yes, but let's have some perspective, and this is what I try to tell people on this. Let's have some perspective. In 200 years, this country dismantled an institution that was practiced in every country for the prior 2,000 years. Not bad. Not bad. So the question isn't which country had slavery, because unfortunately, because of sin, every nation on this planet that we know of, that have, we have records for, had slavery. The real question is, which country stopped it and ended it? And the evidence we can see of how far we have come is amazing. In the last 10 years, we have had a president of the United States of African-American descent, a secretary of state of African-American descent, a currently sitting Supreme Court judge and the current U.S. Surgeon General all of African-American descent. And, not to mention, one of the lead characters in the new Star Wars trilogy, right? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Now, I mean, think about that, from political to cultural. And here's the great thing, did anybody care? I mean this in a good way, like, did any of you go, oh, Flynn's, Flynn's black? No, 
You were just like, Star Wars, right? And you didn't care that the, one of the lead characters was black. You've come pretty far, but there's farther to go. So in light of all this, friends, <laughs> what's our perspective? So here's where I get to the sermon, what the sermon was going to be originally. Five quick words, grieve, resist, listen, learn, trust. Number one, grieve. What we are witnessing should break our hearts. Injustice, hatred, vitriol, brutality, the destruction of what we see going on around us, all done by God's image bearers, all being done to God's image bearers should break our hearts. How can we not grieve the reality of our rebellion against God being displayed in such tragic, destructive ways? It is too easy to lead with anger, too easy to do that, which rarely accomplishes the righteousness of God, James 1.20 tells us. We need to grieve as God grieves, calling out not just for justice, but mercy as well. Because if we don't weep over our own sin, we will not have the perspective that helps us work for reconciliation. So we grieve. Don't let your grief turn to anger, because that, that easily happens. We need to grieve. If you're a believer, grieve, because these are God's image bearers, regardless of what side you're on. Second word, resist. Resist the urge to take a stand. Everywhere in the last several weeks, we look, we are presented with false dichotomies that we have to choose amongst. Black versus white, police versus the people, rich versus poor, us versus them. Resist every demand to submit to a false choice. If you are a Christian, that's what you must do. After all, what does Isaiah remind us? Isaiah 53, he says, we're all on the wrong side. Every single one of us, we have all gone astray. Every one of us turned to his own way. Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one who does good. There is no one who understands. All have gone after their own. Neither the police nor the people, the whites or the blacks, the rich or the poor can claim the moral high ground when we stand before God. We are all on the wrong side. It's just a different of degree and situation. I think of uh, Jer uh, Joshua 5 when, when uh, Joshua is about to, and the children of Israel are about to take Jericho, and the angel of the Lord shows up, right? And he's not one of the like, cutesy, cherubim, baby-looking angels. He's like an angel of God, and Joshua's panicking, and he says to him, are you for us or are you for them? Because this could be really bad. And what's the angel say? I ain't for either of you. I am the commander of the Lord's army. The question is, are you for him? It's not which human side we land on. The real question is, question is, are we on God's side? Resist every external pressure, every internal urge to take any side that isn't the side of Jesus Christ and the implications of his gospel. I don't have to choose to be a cop hater and side with the black community any more than I have to choose to be a Klansman because I sided with the white community. I don't have to choose a utopia perfect America any more than I have to choose a foundationally corrupt America. I don't have to choose between just black lives mattering or all lives mattering. White tyranny, black tyranny, it's all just tyranny. And white supremacy is as much an abomination as black superiority in the eyes of God. I don't want to have to choose between white fallen community, yellow fallen community, or black fallen community because they're all fallen. And that's the problem. And that's why the gospel and the church matters. Because we choose Christ and his message and his gospel and none other. And we cannot allow ourselves to be co-opted by political persuasion, by cultural persuasion. If we do our job right, we get everyone mad at us. Amen. That's just the reality. So, so grieve, uh, resist, listen. This can temper some of that what I've said, and listen, in a world with such complex and systemic problems, with so many competing voices with different solutions, we need wisdom beyond ourselves. Listen to those who have proven to be wise sources of counsel. Listen to those who have different experiences than you. Listen to varied and, 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 and varied voices and perspectives. In this social media age where we're all tempted to go on Twitter and opine or troll or whatever, no, the Bible says, be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so what I have collected here, and I'm going to post this on Realm for you all, of some of the men, um, I, I don't know if I told you, I want to get Harriet Tubman, so I want to listen to her as well. Some of the men that I've been, I wanted to listen to, 
to give me broader perspective, not listen to. And I've got to let you know, when I send this, don't think I'm just giving to you kind of safe, conservative Christian books. I'm not. I, I think only one of these men here are professed Christian, and that's Mark Knoll. Um, and, and one of these men um, might even sound liberal to you, but I, I like him. I'm not about liberal conservative. I want someone who's going to speak truth, whether I want to hear it or not, and challenge me, help me grow. But every one of these books I appreciate because they're, they're thinking through the issues. They're not taking talking points. They're making us wrestle, and they're bringing perspective. And so I want to encourage you. That's why they're here. So after the service, you can come up here and look at it yourself, see if you want to get any one of those. So that's uh, grieve, resist, uh, listen, fourth one, learn. And I don't mean by reading books. What I mean is learn to inhabit the tension of the now and the not yet. I've been using this phrase already and not, uh, the already and not yet. Same thing, the now and the not yet. If you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of this world. Hebrews 11, Philippians 3 tells us we are citizens of a better country that is yet to come. 1 Peter 2 tells all of us we are sojourners, we are exiles, we are strangers to this planet. And as a result, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors to that far off better country, ambassadors to this world with a different message, right? Help your church, whatever church you might go to, if you're at this church, help this church, here's a $10 word, be the eschatological hope of humanity. Eschatology means the last things, right? We talked about that. It's, it's the picture of what's it going to be like at the end where every tribe, tongue, and nation come together. That's what the church ought to be, a picture of that, the eschatological hope. The local church is the place where all of us expats, right? All, an expat is someone who lives out of their native country. This is the place where all of us expats of that better country gather Regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, education, all those things, and we bear witness to the fact that in Christ the two become one. This is the only place the world can see that, is in the church. Do your part to be helping this church be like Christ. Because the church is the hope of humanity, because we acknowledge and we grieve our rebellion against God. In the church, we abandon our side and we plead for mercy to be on God's side. In the church, we listen, according to James, from the wisdom that comes from above and according to Matthew, to the living word. And we implore all humanity, regardless of nation or ethnicity, be ye reconciled to God. Make a difference right here, right now. Friends, I don't have to tell you, we don't, we don't live in the, the kind of the hot spots of the racial tension in our country, right? I mean, we, I mean, we don't. We have brothers and sisters living in those areas. We should be praying for them. But that doesn't mean we still can't make a difference. If anything, Scripture teaches us is how God uses the small things to affect great change. There are people in this congregation that need your ministry. There are people in this congregation that are not like you. Maybe they, they kind of are like you, but, but apply the gospel, Go to the person who's not like you, that you may have nothing in common but Christ, and learn that's all you need and how amazing that is because that's what the world desperately needs and can't find. The church has that built in. So, okay, last one. So, uh, grieve, resist, listen, learn, finally trust. In the midst of the chaos, friends, in the midst of the confusion, the hurt, the pain, the season of anger, God is working. You and I, we may not know what he's doing or what the outcome ultimately will be. And, and let, let's disabuse ourselves of the idea that the outcome will be pleasant to us. It may not be. It may be very unpleasant, but that's okay because God is working and that's what matters. God does not ask us to understand him. He never does. Well, there's that passage in Isaiah, but for the most part, um, <laughs> you know, he says, come, let us reason together. I'm just trying to be fully transparent. Generally speaking, God doesn't say, I want you to understand me. In fact, Isaiah 55 says, you can't understand me, for my ways are as high above your ways as the, earth, the heavens are above the earth. The ant on the floor has a better chance of understanding me than I have of understanding the mind of God. But he does ask us to trust him because he's good, he's merciful, and he's in control, regardless of what we see around us, so we can trust in that and take joy because his kingdom cannot be thwarted. His people will not be stopped. And as a church, if you're a Christian, we have to realize that. The, the world, I've said this before, I'm going to conclude, they need us more than ever. 
They, they don't need necessarily our cool t-shirts and coffee shops and our bookstores. That's not what they need. They, they need us to be winsome with the word of God, full of scripture, to be like the men of Issachar who are wise to their time, who could speak to the world, the issues, and why the gospel matters. And, and our biggest fear, my biggest fear is not that we're going to have persecution and not that things are going to get worse for us. I don't have bar, my biggest fear is that we're just always so blessed and affluent and we'll be entertained to death. So rather than picking up a book and learning and wrestling through the issues, it's a lot easier to check out and watch Netflix. I'm not against Netflix. I like it. But that's the biggest challenge. Will we be the kinds of salt and light that the world needs? That's our heritage. Let's not be the most entertained, affluent history of the, uh, culture of the church and be the most ineffective when we have all the resources and ability to make a difference. Whether it's going to the mission field, whether it's getting well-read and being salt and light, bringing some reconciliation events, this carcinogenic conversations, whether it's just loving somebody in this church well, make your life count because the world needs us to. Let's pray. Oh, uh, so last thing. So community groups. Um, I'm going to post a couple things. Uh, there's no questions, but I love it because I'm going to post uh, 15 things to think about in light of what we just talked about this morning, and they're written by Kevin DeYoung. You can just read through the, the titles and talk amongst, amongst your group. I think it'll be really good. And then I'll post all of these books and links to Amazon so you can buy the exact copy. So if you decide to read it and you want to talk to me about it, I'll know exactly we can be on the same page because this is a conversation we need to keep having over and over again, right? the gospel and race, the gospel and fear, the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. None of us in this, in this palm court deserve to be reconciled to you. But you did. And you didn't ask us to pay for it. You paid for it. None of us deserve to be reconciled. None of us paid for it. You did it all. And so we stand, we sit here humbly before you, asking with what great grace given to us, how do we steward the next five weeks, five years, decade, 50 years? How do we steward our lives for ways that matter? Help us to turn a deaf ear to the cultural shallowness around us, to not use the metrics of bigger, better, success, and all that stuff, but the metrics that we're going to learn about Second 2 Timothy, of suffering, of service, of faithfulness that you see and reward greatly. We, Lord, want to be a church. That's our heart's desire. We want to be Christians. Make us so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.